You ever have trouble sleeping at night? If you do, you're not alone. This is a scary statistic. I did a little Google research. I never know how to, there's always different stats, but they all, they all, um, they were all in the same ballpark. In America, we spend more than a half billion dollars and consume 800,000 pounds of pills to try to help us get to sleep each year. Isn't that amazing? Half a billion dollars, 800,000 pounds of pills to help us get to sleep. Why is it so hard to get a decent night's rest? Why is it so hard? What do you suppose is the, the main reason for sleeplessness? Maybe if you think about your own life, if several of you were nodding when I asked if you find it difficult to sleep sometimes, what is it that keeps you up at night? And maybe the, the right question to be asking is this, what robs you of having a restless heart? There's literally millions of different reasons out there because there's millions of us who struggle to sleep. But I think they all boil down to one thing, and it's this. We worry. We worry. And what do we worry about? Well, again, millions of us, there's millions of things to worry about, but I think we could sum all of our worries up really in one word. It's this. The future. We worry about our future. And that's all there really is to worry about, right? It kind of makes sense. What's going to happen tomorrow? And especially in times of crisis, that's when our worry tends to really ramp up. How am I going to get out of this crisis that I'm experiencing? How am I going to, to, to get out of this one? How am I going to move ahead? What if, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this doesn't happen? And on and on and on. And we turn and we find that we've been staring at an alarm clock that's ticking and ticking away, right? You can relate to that. I can relate to that. We've all been there. So this passage today, I think, is very helpful because we're going to see here that Daniel is dealing with this same age-old problem. We're going to see three different examples of how people deal with a crisis situation wrapped around worrying about the future. And the question for us to ask ourselves is this, which of these examples, these three things, which best describe me? What, what best explains how I've been living? And what can I do to manage crises better? So I hope you're still there with Daniel chapter 2 open. We're going to begin with our first example, and it's this. It's the sovereign in crisis. The king Nebuchadnezzar in crisis. Look back at the beginning of the text. Now the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and it says his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. Now remember, we were introduced to Nebuchadnezzar last week as we began the study of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the, the most powerful man in the world. He's the king of the kingdom of Babylon, which is the most powerful kingdom in the world. So you can imagine, he probably had just about anything he could possibly want. He had power. He had prestige. He had position above anybody else on the planet. And yet, verse 1 here says, his spirit was troubled. He had it all, but his spirit was troubled. 
And this was written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for trouble means a deep disturbance inducing apprehension. Like this is, this is not some light kind of trouble that's being conveyed here. He was deeply disturbed. So what was the cause of the trouble? What was the crisis that he was in? Well, he's having these dreams, and these dreams are, are kind of weird. We read the description of the dreams, and he's trying to figure out what, is, what does this all mean? There's this sense that he clearly has that, that this has meaning. There's the sense that he has that this is speaking about him and his own future, but he has no idea what it means, and this is tremendously troubling to him. This was a frightening dream. Daniel lets us know in verse 29 what the worry was about. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision of the future. And he saw a vision of his future. His problem was that he didn't understand again what it meant. He knew there was something important. He knew there was something even frightening about it. But he couldn't figure it out. So in other words, Nebuchadnezzar was a lot like you and me. He might be the most powerful man in the world at the time, but he's a lot like you and me. He worried to the point of restlessness. He went to bed one night, I would assume, happy as a lark, and woke with fear in his heart. You ever done that? That's how quickly a a crisis can come upon us. That's how quickly things can turn, right? We can be going along merrily and all of a sudden we find ourselves plunged into a time of crisis. So what does he do? What would you do? Well, it's interesting. I think he does what we all would do. He does it in a different way than we can. But look again at verse 2. He commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. So his anxiety led him to do what? Well, he wanted to seek the best he could find. He wanted the best counsel. He wanted the best advice. So he goes after really the best, we could say, the best that humanity has to offer. Babylon, of course, was the center of superstition. It was the center of idol worship. It had this Vast array of of magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and wise men. And so the king says, bring them all to me. I want to talk to everybody. He was in crisis. And so he says, "I I want to go after the best that the world has to offer. The best that my money can buy, bring them to me. That, I think, sounds familiar. I don't have the money that Nebuchadnezzar has, and I would assume that none of you do as well. But the concept here is is one that that we we might call fortification. What do you do when crisis strikes? What do you do when you're worried? You start to think about, how do I fortify myself against all these things that I'm beginning to fear? How do I build up around me the counsel that I need, the advice that I need, the, the safety and the security measures that I can put in place? I'm worried. I need to build up some kind of fortification to protect myself to get myself through this, to work out of the crisis. I don't want to be in this crisis anymore. We all do that. We fortify. And here's the thing. Does it work? Does it work for Nebuchadnezzar? Does it really ever work for us? The short answer is no. No. 
And as we unfold why it doesn't work, we're going to get a look at our second example of crisis management, and it's the subjects in crisis. Look back at verse 4. So the Chaldeans come in, they say to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show the interpretation. Right? Just give us a clue here. Give us a picture of what you've been thinking about, and we'll come up with an explanation for it. The king answers, though, and he says to them, no, the word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and the interpretation, then you're going to be torn limb from limb. It's easy for, if I give you the dream, you can come up with an explanation. If I want to know if you're really worth your salt, if I want to know if you're worth the money that I'm paying you, if you're really the fortification that I'm looking for, you'll be able to tell me the dream. And then you'll be able to give me the interpretation. That, that would be a scary moment, right? If you're a magician or a Chaldean, you're some charlatan who's wanting to, uh, to prove your mettle, but all of a sudden you're being asked to do the impossible. So we've seen that the king is in crisis because he's troubled. Now the best that the world has to offer are in the room, these wise men, magicians, and sorcerers, and they're finding themselves in a pretty serious crisis of their own. You've got to tell me what the dream was or I'm going to tear your limbs off. By the way, I, I, I was reading about the, uh, the, the, the techniques here. Some of the commentaries explain this. Um, if you were lucky... What he meant by that is we, I'll, I'll hack off your, your arms and your legs. Uh, otherwise, a common practice was this. <laughs> this is morbid. This is scary. But they would, they would take four trees. They would bend them down, tie them off, and then tie each of your limbs to one of the trees and then hack the rope and whoosh! That was the tearing off of limbs that was practiced in Babylon. Now, I'm, I'm telling you that partly because I think it's kind of fascinating. That fascinates me. I don't mean to gross you out. But, I, but I'm also I'm telling you that more specifically to think about this is what kind of crisis these guys knew they were in. Like, you tell me what I'm thinking or that's going to happen to you. Right. That, that would be a crisis. If that happens to you, it is a bad day, right? So how, how will they handle this crisis? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was smart enough to figure it out for us. So again, look back at verse 7. I'm going to turn my page, sorry. They answered a second time. And they said, let the king tell his servant the dream and we'll show the interpretation. And he said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I'll know that you can show me it's interpretation. What's he identifying there by saying that? He's saying, look, I know how you're seeking to manage this crisis of your own. It's one of two ways. First of all, you'll say anything you can to appease me. In other words, you're going to lie to me. Or you're going to stall long enough that I might forget about it. 
So remember, I asked us to consider which of these examples best describe our life. And I wonder how many of us try to pass through crises by either sort of lying our way through it or stalling our way through it, hoping to just sort of sweep our problems under the rug until they just go away. Maybe like the, the Chaldeans, we, we try our best to avoid the consequences of our own shortcomings by, by just hoping we can sort of skate by long enough for other people to forget how we've either wronged them or failed them. When you're worrying about the future, how, how often is it that you're worried about other people finding you out? And so what do we do to stave that off? Well, we lie and we stall. But again, ultimately, does this kind of trickery work? Does that solve anything? No, because ultimately our deception and our stall tactics will always be found out. And they're found out here. Again, we see that in verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king said, there's not a man on earth who can meet this demand. No great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of a magician or an enchanter or a Chaldean. What you've asked is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So that's, a, that's an interesting foreshadowing here, right? But here we see the failure of our first two examples in successfully dealing with crises. Nebuchadnezzar put his trust in the best that the world had to offer and it failed him. And the so-called best of the world put their trust in their own ability to duck and stall, and it failed them miserably. So obviously we need another example. We need a good example. And God gives us just that in our third example. It's the saints in crisis. And in this we're going to find our application. All this trouble is, not, is going to have an impact not just on Nebuchadnezzar, and on the subjects, the magicians, it's going to have an impact on everybody. And it has an impact on God's people too. Again, verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon should be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Remember at the end of chapter 1, Daniel and his companions had been established in the king's court. So they're considered in the pool of the wise men. So even though they weren't initially brought in, they had no culpability in lying and stalling to the king, they're in crisis too because he wants to destroy everybody. Nebuchadnezzar's having a bad day. The wise men are having a bad day and now Daniel and his buddies are faced with having a bad day too. So how will they handle this crisis? How will they handle their own crisis? What's going to mark them as different? What's going to set them apart as an example for us to imitate rather than to forget? Well, there's three things that Daniel does which are imperative for God's people as we find ourselves in similar situations. The first is this. He exercises prudence. Another word for that would be just basically common sense. Look back down at verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Daniel seeks to discover, look, what's going on? 
And would he panic? No, he would show prudence. I think often the, the, the cause of anxiety for us is that we, we, we fail to take this first really important step of just having common sense and prudence to evaluate what's going on. And here's the thing that's different about God's people from anybody else. We have this knowledge. This, this is our common sense knowledge in any given situation. There is a God in heaven who's always in control. Right? I don't have to make my, my first reaction doesn't have to be fortification. My first reaction should be pause, think, God's in control. There's a, there's a God who's bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. There's a power and a purpose and a plan at work that supersedes Nebuchadnezzar's anger and his frustration and his wanting to just take it all out on everybody. God is in control. That's the common sense thinking that we're called to as the people of God. Do I believe God's still in control? Yeah. So he begins with this prudence. The second thing we see from him is patience. Patience. Look down at verse 15. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariak made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Here's another important principle, and it's one I admit I struggle with often. I lack patience. This is also the thing that Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men lacked, right? Nobody's exercising any patience here. They all wanted a, a quick fix to the trouble that was around them. And I think that's true of all of us. Why is that true? Why, why do we struggle with patience? Probably because we rarely start with the prudent thinking of reminding ourselves that God's in control. And our lack of patience then is a sign that we lack faith in God. You know, 1 Peter 5.6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. We want quick fixes. We're reminded that God is in control and that God works in, in His time. So we trust Him. And that's what Daniel's doing here. He believes that God would help him. He didn't presume that God would do this on Daniel's timetable, but that He would work in His own time, His perfect time. And this is why I believe Daniel asked for this time, this Patience, because he knew that God wanted to drive Daniel first to himself. And that's the third thing then. Prayer. Prayer. This is what he was asking for time to accomplish. We talk about this all the time. Prayer is a recognition and a declaration of dependence on God. Right? Prayer is talking to God. It's letting our requests be made known. But, but the heart of it is always this, this recognition and declaration of dependence upon Him. There are certain things that Daniel could do in this situation. He could, he could find out what was wrong. He could ask the king for time. That's the prudent common sense thing for him to do. But then there were things that he couldn't do. Like, know the dream. Interpret it. Sort of, sort of stave off the, 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 uh, the fast temper of the king. He needed to ask the Lord for all of that. So he prayed. And there's things that we can learn from his prayer. 
that I want to just spend a little bit of time on because I think they're, they're, so, they're so helpful. Look at verse 17. I'm going to read uh, this portion of the text again. The whole prayer. Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the King's matter. Just a few things that I'm going to put up here on the screen that I want you to recognize. I think they're they're helpful for us as we think about going to God in prayer, specifically in times like this, when we're worried, when we're, we're concerned about the future. First thing is we see that there was a period of prayer that was set aside. Daniel, we're told in this, in this text, and we'll see it next week, was a, was a man who set aside three times a day for prayer. So he already had this regular practice of prayer but we can see here that there, because of this special situation, he set aside a special time. He set aside an additional period of time for concentrated prayer on this particular issue. And I think there's, a, there's an important principle there that I, I wonder how, how we're doing in that regard as the people of God. When you're faced with situations like this, do you not only remember to, to go to the Lord in prayer, but do you take the, um, do, do you plan out? Are you strategic enough, if you will, to actually say, let me set aside time? I think we can pray at all times. We should pray without ceasing. But is, it, is there something unique about saying, I'm going to take a special set-aside time to devote it, to concentrate in prayer? We see Daniel doing that. He's got a, a period for prayer. And then he's got a place for prayer. He went to his house. There was a place of prayer. His, his home was, was often a place of prayer. In chapter 6, we discover he had a room in his place that was devoted to prayer. And I wonder, I, think, I was thinking about that for myself this week. Do I, do I have a place that's set aside for a prayer? And as I was thinking about that, I was convicted because I have a place that's set aside for work. I have a place that's set aside for, for specific kinds of leisure, right? We have hobbies that we do. Maybe you have a little hobby area in your house that you've set aside because you value those things. Do we have a place that's set aside for prayer? Is there anything more valuable that we can be doing than going before our God and letting our requests be made known and conversing with him and do we do we demonstrate the value of that by saying this is my prayer space daniel had one thirdly he had partners in prayer he went to his house and he informed his friends hananiah mishael azariah about the matter his three trusted friends were were in on it 
they, like Daniel, had to take their stand. He valued their help in prayer. And I wonder again, how often are we doing that as the people of God? It's important for us to pray alone, to go into your closet, if you will, your place of prayer, and let those requests be made known to God. But there is, there's a special way in which God works through prayer corporately. Are we allowing God's people into our prayer lives so that we can be praying together with them? Do we hold back the things that we're worried about in prayer because we don't want others to know how we're wrestling through these issues? And and how, when we do that, are we missing out on God's way of working by the unity of the Spirit within the body of Christ to pray with one another? Daniel seems to recognize that. There was a purpose in their prayer. They prayed, verse 18, that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. They were praying very specifically about this situation. They had a position in prayer. Another way to say that is a posture in their prayer. They prayed that they might request compassion from God. They, they came humble. God, if, if you don't answer this prayer, we, we will be just like anyone else apart from your mercy, apart from your compassion to spare us. They came humbly before God. And look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. After the the prayer came, the mercy of God, they prayed, they received an answer from God. I love this. You think about this. In the darkest hour, God revealed Himself. Right? God answered the prayer and He he brought relief. It's, It's oftentimes, I think, that God works in this way. In the darkness of a crisis to answer our prayers. And then when He does, we see Daniel do what what we must do. Praise God. There's the praise of his prayer. Did did Daniel get the answer and immediately go, all right, great, I'm going to go talk to Nebuchadnezzar. Did he run to the king? No, he paused. And he took time to praise the Lord. Notice how this prayer brings, brings praise. Thank you, God. Bless you, God. More prayer will lead to more blessing that will lead to more praise. So let's ask the question again. What are you worried about? What troubles you? And where do you run in time of trouble? It's so common for us to turn to things and to people that will fail us. And God is showing us through this example, no, He wants us to come to Him first, alone, in the recognition that He's the one who never fails. And when we turn to Him, He's worthy of our praise. His sovereignty and His faithfulness are evident in all of our situations and He's worthy of our praise. 
Here's the, I think, the most fascinating part of this whole scene. We learn something from the example of Daniel. Certainly about prudence and patience and prayer. But did you catch the content of the dream? I know it was a little bit kind of prophetic and, and, and symbol rich. You've got this image with the gold head and the, and the chest and the, the legs and all this precious and strong metal and then the feet of iron and clay. And as, as we read through that, I hope you got a sense that what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing was he was seeing this prophetic image of the future of not only his kingdom, but the kingdoms to follow. But that there was this stone that was cut out, not from human hands, and this stone would dash all of these kingdoms to pieces and ultimately fill the earth and establish the earth with an everlasting kingdom. What was he, what was he seeing in all that? He was not only seeing his future and the future of his kingdom, he was seeing the future of God's kingdom. He was seeing the coming of Christ's kingdom. Jesus is the stone cut out, right? It's Jesus' kingdom that will be built and last forever, that will dash all of the earthly kingdoms ultimately and establish Himself forever and ever. That's what He was seeing. And I want to submit to us that that's when we worry, all of us, we see the same future. We see the same future. Whatever it is that you're concerned about and how that affects you and causes anxiety, you're, you're seeing the same reality. If you're, especially if you're a believer, you're seeing that there's either A, trusting in my own fortifications, which will eventually crumble, or trusting in the rock. Trusting in the Savior, Jesus, whose kingdom is coming and will be established forever. Again, common sense. Christian worldview, simple prudence. There's a God who's in control. And the way in which He will exercise that control throughout history that will alleviate all of my worries is that He's sending His Son to establish His kingdom forever and ever. It will not fail. And Nebuchadnezzar saw that. He saw that and he focused on what it meant for his kingdom's crumbling rather than what it meant for the coming of the kingdom that would never crumble. That's why he was afraid. And I would submit to you, when you worry and you lose sleep, you're doing the same thing. You're looking at your fortifications and the kingdom that you're building and you're seeing them crumbling and cracking and you see the clay mixed in with the iron and you're worried about that because you're, you're maybe putting your hope in the earthly kingdom rather than recognizing that Christ is the everlasting. And as the people of God, we can see that and give praise. We can see that and have all of our, our, all of our worries alleviated. Not, not to say that we'll never worry about things that happen in this life, but when we worry about them, we can always say, you know what? They're all temporal. They, they might be significant. They might matter. They're all temporal. Jesus' kingdom is everlasting. And if I know Him, I'm a part of that. His kingdom is my hope. My righteousness, my peace, my comfort, my eternity. The thing that Nebuchadnezzar feared most 
was the coming of the kingdom that would destroy his own kingdom. He feared the coming of Christ, which is ironic because it was the very thing that he needed that coming of that kingdom of Christ to allay all of his fears. So believer, know this. Christ has come to rule in our hearts and to bring rest to our restless hearts. Nebuchadnezzar took his troubles to bed. Daniel took his troubles to God. What will we do? Would you pray with me? Father, thank You that we can be reminded of this truth. The rock, the stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw, he saw in the future. We can look back and see in the past that Jesus has come. That His announcement when He arrived was that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That His death on the cross and His resurrection established the forever kingdom. And that our faith in Him allows us to enter in. Father, I think about the things that we worry about. I think about the, the ways in which missionally You could use us as Your people in our world to show our neighbors that there's, there's a better hope. I think about the divides and the fears and the way that those fears have just... It seems like the, the world's on fire right now with fear. We see it all over our, our, our newspapers and our televisions and our, our social media streams. How fear is just gripping people. And how it displays itself so grossly in the way that we treat one another. Father, I pray that You'd protect us from entering into that kind of fear. I pray that You'd root us in the knowledge that no, we belong to the King. We have nothing to fear. And I pray that You'd use us in our world to speak prudently to the fears of the world and say, let me interpret this for you. Yes, you, you're a part of a crumbling kingdom, but there's an everlasting kingdom and, and the King is Jesus. Lord, use us to speak those truths into our world because we believe them. Fortify us in Christ. And thank You that we have that hope. Jesus is our great hope. Praise to You. Thank You, God. You set up kings and kingdoms and seasons and all the th You are in control and, and, and Jesus is our hope. We thank You and praise You. In His great name. Amen.